Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and I'm here with uh, Michael Hart. And I've uh, interviewed Michael before. Uh, you have done extensive work. How many How many books have you written, Michael? Uh, I have 10 books that are published. What, what would be some of the themes that you're hitting? Uh, my work is primarily biblical studies and theology, Christian theology, um, but I'm particularly interested in the intersection of uh, anthropology and theology, or this what some would more broadly call the sciences and religion. That's been an area of, of interest of mine, as well as interpretation theory. They all kind of run together. Is it Rene Girard that provoked you in that direction, or was that prior to your encounter with Gerard? Well, I, I began learning biblical languages back when I was 19 uh, years old. That was way back in the day. <laughs> I'm an old man now, you know. Yeah. And uh, and then, of course, uh, that uh, interest in biblical studies moved into theology, and then that moved into church history. And so I began just reading voraciously in all of those disciplines. And then in 1987, I did discover Gerard. And since that time, yes, I, I would say that there's been a, a real growing interest in my life in integrating patterns that I see all over the place. Another pattern uh, that's one of my books is called Walking with Grandfather, and it details my, at that time, about 15 years of wilderness survival and Native American shamanic training. And then my latest thing now, of course, is economics and, and economic theory and history and where the world's going and right. so i I'm, I'm seeing a large it's a it's a big picture for me but it all comes down to a very simple thing and that's that we take all of our knowledge from the wrong place um, we typically want to take our knowledge from a god uh, a, a holy book uh, a, ch- a church figure a church authority a religious figure religious authority or even we uh, interiorize and project our own psychological deficiencies uh, on God right into ourselves and claim to be inspired by some spirit. Mm-hmm. My argument is that real knowledge is only given when there is forgiveness. Um, and um, knowledge comes from the forgiving victim. And so that's that's my whole thing in a nutshell. I just gave you a, a 200-page PhD thesis in a nutshell. Did you uh, complete a thesis uh, on, uh, on that topic? I am looking at it. I'm sitting here looking at it. I haven't submitted it for the final term yet, but I'm sitting yeah. here looking at it. Where are, you, where are you doing your PhD? Charles Sturt University out of Canberra, Australia. Okay, okay. I mean, that's a very Girardian idea, I think. Mm-hmm. But it's also Gerard giving us an understanding of, of a biblical perspective. And that is the, the one that has been victimized, the scapegoat, or Christ himself in, in, in this sense, that he is the, the victim. That it is that from that position, from not from the positions of power, but from in some way those who have been oppressed, that we're, we're going to uh, gain truth. Well, y- yes, in a sense, yes. It's, it's, but it's important to note that it's not victims in general that reveal truth. Because right? if that were the case, we would have learned long ago to stop this craziness that we inflict on each other. In 
in my main theory, there are three types of victims. There's the victim of mythology, and we see this in, in classic mythology where two rivals engage and a community forms around one rival and they kill the other one and they justify it. Biblically, we have Joshua chapter 7, the story of Achan. Achan is a true scapegoating story. It's one of the few in the scriptures. Um, but if you want to understand how the dynamic really plays out in mythology, all you have to do is be a police officer today answering a violent domestic call dispute where uh, two partners are going after each other enough that one has to call the police. But when the police get there, the two rivals in the house now gang up against the police officer. There's nothing wrong here. You're the problem. What'd you come for? Bam, bam, bam. And that's that dynamic. Uh -huh. Family systems exhibited. Family systems will be exhibiting it all over this holiday season because there is so much uh, pent up inside of people. The second type of victim is the victim that is truly innocent. And uh, we see uh, that in the biblical narrative, only you don't find this in uh, external mythology, but you do find it in the Jewish mythology of Genesis chapter 4. And Abel is innocent. The problem with Abel is it's true that he's innocent and there's a certain knowledge that can be gleaned from that and there are certain things that can be developed from that. But Abel is also retributive. His blood cries out from the ground. And so we do see, in fact, the beginnings of a, of a very gospel move by the God in the text where he refuses to take vengeance on Cain. He refuses to hear Abel's prayer for vengeance. And then, of course, the third victim is the forgiving victim. That's the victim that allows the other person's hostility to simply pass through them. They don't take it personally, and they forgive them. Hopefully, in that forgiveness comes repentance and reconciliation. That would be the goal. And so those are your three victims. The first victim doesn't can create a sense of false reconciliation around a scapegoat. The second victim... Uh, is truly innocent and can bring some knowledge, but is still retributive and locked up into the mechanism of violence, conquering violence. But it's only the forgiving victim now that truly does bring real knowledge through the healing of relationships, through forgiveness, through repentance, that kind of thing. Well, you're reading the, you know, the Abel account. Uh, Christ will quote the idea that the, uh, the blood of Abel cries out. Mm -hmm. And of course, the question is, what does the blood of Abel cry out for? One could read that as retribution, but I presume that in the mouth of Christ, that his fulfillment of that, in other words, that they're about to kill him too. Uh, these people are murderers, they're killers, mm -hmm. but they're killers in the same fashion that all people or you know, that they're religious, they're ethical, in other words, that what is driving them, and this is the quotation, you know, that you're repeating, your what what your fathers did, and they can't they can't recognize. Correct. It. And so, isn't it the case that in that interpretive frame, that the understanding is not that what Abel's blood is crying out for is vengeance, but what Abel's blood is crying out for, and what will be fulfilled in Christ then is that there will be an exposure of this scapegoating mechanism. Yes, but, but the exposure is not simply enough. Exposing something doesn't take away its power. I would note two things. First, the, the phrase um, uh, blood crying out 
is uh, almost always used in the Hebrew scriptures um, as a metonym for vengeance. But the writer to the epistle to the Hebrews even looked at this text and said, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than that of Abel's. And it's not just that Abel's innocent. This is one of the things that the liberal progressives, uh, they make the big mistake because they go, there are two types of victims. There's the victim of the colonialists and the victims of myth, and they, they abuse and crush us. And now there's our voice. There's our voice. We're, we're going to be the, the new voice. And the problem is, is that both of them are locked into the mechanism of violence and retribution. And so, you know, if the victim uh, manages to or the victim's people or group, or they manage to conquer the persecutor's people or group, well, they just become the new boss. And like um, the who said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, won't get fooled again, but we do get fooled again all the time because we think that it's the voice of the so-called victim that's an authentic gospel voice. It's not. It's definitely a voice that breaks from mythology, but it is not a gospel voice. Let me get this straight. That, In other words, we're living in a time when we're hearing the voices of many victims. Correct. And, mo and almost all the victims' voices we're hearing are crying out for vengeance, retribution, uh, reparations. Uh, they all under the name of justice. It's all done under the name of justice, which is a Roman goddess. In, in Scripture, justice is mercy. Um, this is one of the arguments of the prophet Isaiah. It's one of the arguments that Jesus will use, and it's it's also found in Romans chapter 11. God's justice is always mercy. He, and as Paul says, he's put us all under disobedience right. in order that we might have mercy on all. And, you know, and this is the problem we experience in America today is you have the conservative Christians and the liberal Christians both claiming biblical tradition, both claiming the moral high ground, you know, both claiming God is on their side. And what they don't realize is that they're just acting like Cain and Abel, Romulus and Remus. You know, I mean, it's there are these twins that hate each other and will um, one will win, one will dominate and crush the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and nobody will, there will be no forgiveness here in America. And so your dissertation, the, the, is this, this is the point you're pursuing? Well, the dissertation is a larger question about the locus of revelation. Where is revelation to be found? Which is a perennial question in the history of the church. Um, my thesis argues that there are two major uh, fault lines in Christianity. Uh, and that the Christian tradition tends to derive the category of revelation from one of those two fault lines rather than from the cross. The first one is the Jerusalem church and their influence and their commingling of law and gospel. And the second is Marcion, uh, who I, I tend to date books like Acts uh, or the pastoral epistles to around the, uh, the decade, the second decade of the second century, the teens, early 20s. And I see that literature reflecting a battle with Marcion. You know, I, I'm bookending in this sense the New Testament with the first church, the Jerusalem church, their mingling of law and gospel, and Marcion at the end of the, the process, he's separating the God of Israel from the, from the Father of Jesus. He separates the Creator from, you know, the Demiurge. He's Gnostic and dualistic. And, and both of those have entered into the Christian tradition and fundamentally oriented us toward um, a, a view of revelation that requires us in some way, shape, or form to localize it either in the text, in ourselves, um, in, our, in our intellect, um, anywhere but the cross, anywhere but the cross. And so uh, give us a, uh, what would be 
the revelation, the specific revelation of the cross? The revelation of the cross is pretty simple. You have no enemies. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He's alluding to what, well, modern psychology would want to call the unconscious. That is, they're, they're, they're committing certain actions, uh -huh. but they're unconscious as to why, what's going on. If you would have asked Pilate or Caiaphas that day or the soldiers, do you know what you're doing? Caiaphas would have said, yeah, it's better one man die than the nation perish. The soldiers would have said, yeah, we're doing our job. This guy's a terrorist. You know, uh, Pilate washed his hands of the whole thing. And the thing is, with Jesus, we have a figure who is taking this extraordinary abuse uh, from both his own countrymen and women, as well as foreign authorities. And he recognizes that they really don't know what they're doing. In other words, this can't be held to their account. They're being used by something else. There's some other power in their life, but it's not about them. And so he can say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In other words, he does not attribute intention. Now, if you stop and think about the fact that our entire juridical system depends on being able to connect action and intention. Your Honor, this man did this on purpose. Bah, 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 bah. We can prove premeditation, dot, 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 right? And it's when they can't make that connection, like my client is mentally challenged and the psychologist here can prove it, dot, 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 so that you can't connect uh -huh. action and, and intention. Now you can't convict. You can only convict where you connect action and intention. So our entire Western legal system, which is supposedly so Christian, um, is actually nothing to do with Christianity. Because if it did, it would recognize that there is no such thing as crime, just as there is no such thing as sin. Uh -huh. It is always... Uh, retributive. Yep. Oh, it's, it's, it's always tit for tat, man. Always. In, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Bernard Lonergan, but he opposes, and then uh, is it Robert Dorn, uh, the idea of the law of the cross. And that is that there we might add, and I'm wondering, that, you know, certainly the message is that you're, that you have no enemies, but also then that you would lay down your life for your enemies. Yeah. And the, and this is that would be the second piece I would come to because knowledge of the cross is not theoretical. It's not atonement theories. It's none of that. It's um, Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, that is, if you want to imitate me, copy me, be like me, he said, you got to carry a cross every day. Most Christians have assumed at that point, Jesus is saying, well, if you're going through any kind of suffering, uh, then you're being like me. And so that we've tended to valorize suffering. And then, of course, the people in power say, oh, look at those people suffering, how Christ is in them, and they do all their, their nonsense. No, no. To carry your cross every day simply means that when somebody hurts you, you forgive them because you know they don't know what they're doing. They, you know, Even if they insist they know what they're doing, they really don't. They're, they're controlled by another principality and power. And if you live that way every day, you're going to run into problems like how many times a day should I forgive my brother? Seven? You know, so you can see the logic of this being played out in the minds of the disciples and the Gospels already. And this is precisely where Christianity cannot go. It cannot go into relationships, human relationships, everyday life, family life, neighborly life, work life, civic life, whatever. They can't do it where they're forgiving those that hurt them.
Mm-hmm. because they don't know what they're doing. And that's the attitude you have to take when somebody criticizes you, hates on you. That's what I do. You know, I got all kinds of crap on Facebook. I got all kinds of haters on Facebook. And I, I you know, it's just like, I know they don't know what they're doing. I, I know they're controlled by something else, you know, and I can pray for them. If we talked about uh, notions of nonviolence, mm-hmm. Clearly, we're talking about a form of nonviolence. Yes, well, the th- the, here's the problem with nonviolence is you've just used the word violence to define the action, and you said, well, it's not going to be violent. It's, it's so you know what is so now you've got to define violence, and now you know you can sit and do all kinds of casuistry at that point. I do not like the term nonviolence. I wouldn't use it unless it was popular. I don't, you know, I mean, I have to talk a lot about the quote nonviolent atonement. I don't like that. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, Jesus' death was not nonviolent. It was very violent. Right, right. Um, but, but we all know that basically that has to do with God not being, uh, you know, um, an ogre. Uh, but I would much prefer, if we're going to talk about this, we have to use the very specific term forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That's the term that sticks in the throat of every Christian. And yet they pray it every day. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. We pray this every flipping day, mm-hmm. and we won't practice it. And because we won't practice that one thing, we have no Christianity. Mm-hmm. So the- we, we have religion, but we don't have Christianity. That's the knowledge of the cross, walking through every day, forgiving everyone right. for everything. Yeah, and I guess step one is let's describe what we're supposed to be about, and step two is to do it. Of course, that's the problem, I think. Uh, I, I kind of understand what I'm supposed to be about. I understand that I need to forgive. How do you do it? You do it. You do it. If you can yeah. stand before the Father of Lights and you have any reason to stand there other than mercy, um, you're not standing before the Father of Lights. You're standing before an idol. You've justified yourself. Now, if we're going to stand before the creator of the universe in pure mercy, seeking pure mercy and forgiveness for ourselves, how can we not live that out if we are children of the light, if we're children of the Father? How can we not live that out? The Anabaptist said, only those who know Christ follow him, and only those who follow him know him. And what I'm trying to say is that Christianity has been primarily an intellectual exercise for 2,000 years, and we've produced a lot of good things from that including the discipline of science, which is an epistemological, uh, it was the Christians that brought about the epistemological shift so that we could have modern critical science. So there's a lot that has arisen out of, out of the Christian West and Christian culture and all of this, but not none of this is gospel. This understanding, I'm sure, has not put you in good stead then in your Christian walk with those around you. No. No, people get upset because they, they think what I'm doing, they think what I'm doing is justifying, you know, perpetrators and persecutors and this and that and the other. Now, I would want I would want to say this, and this is very important. When I was first out teaching this, that you know, I would have uh, women in particular come up to me and say, "Am I supposed to stay in an abusive relationship with my husband?" I said, "Absolutely not. Get out. Get out now." Get someplace safe. Get into a shelter. Go to your sister's house. Go somewhere. Get out of the relationship. Okay? Mm-hmm. But if they if they are truly looking for healing, both inside themselves, truly inside themselves, then they will forgive. Now, the other person may never repent, but that doesn't matter. 
Forgiveness doesn't depend on anything. Forgiveness is the initiator. In fact, it's forgiveness that causes repentance. Mm -hmm. We are forgiven, therefore we repent. That's what John Calvin calls evangelical forgiveness, as opposed to legalistic forgiveness, which is, if you repent, then you'll be forgiven, which is what we teach in Christianity. It does, though, seem to be that once uh, you come to an understanding of the gospel that is not the typical evangelical understanding in many senses, that there is a sense this notion that you're describing is repulsive in some way. And I'm curious uh, that in your own personal journey, I'm sure that you've been made (laughs) to have to forgive in many situations. Well, I've always been a cowboy, um, a renegade, an explorer, a trailblazer. That's that's who I am. It's my personality. And it's gotten me in trouble with every single group I've ever been a part of because I'm willing to question, question the norms and the status quo and this and that and the other. I mean, I, as a pastor, it, it created ministerial burnout for me. Um, uh, you know, I mean, just three years ago, I dared to, I dared to question the progressive minded, open-minded Christians. And boy, they flipped out and became instantly fundamentalist and uh, sent my ministry straight into bankruptcy. <laughs> I've been kicked out of every church I've ever been a member of. I've been asked to leave because I challenged the pastor, mm-hmm. you know? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I've been in, and I can think of an academic group I've been part of that claims to know all about scapegoating intellectually, but I am their functional scapegoat. And some of the people in that organization know it, and most are blind still, even though they write books about scapegoating. So uh, for me, it's no longer... Uh, important to be part of a group. I don't go to church. Uh, I have a, my close circle of friends uh, that I'm in touch with every day. We talk, you know, and uh, my, I have five guy best friends and, you know, I'm just talking to them all the time. And I really, uh-huh. I don't need any other uh, community uh, to conform to. Uh, which seems to not be an unusual story. No, we're the nuns and the duns, baby. We are the biggest, fastest growing group of religious people in America. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. there's insipid kind of shallowness that I think many of us ha- are in, have encountered. Now, I'm saying all this, and I'm still uh, in fairly traditional roles, but not really. Uh, uh, you're talking about, first of all, the group that formed around Rene Girard very early on. Oh, perhaps. Uh, that is a kind of a, an amazing thing. Talk, tell a little bit. You encountered Gerard early, yeah. and you knew Gerard. Tell, talk a little bit about that. I discovered Gerard through the work of Raymond Schwager's book, Must There Be Scapegoats, in October of 1987. A very vivid day in my memory. I mean, it's become almost a sacred day in my memory. I began conversations with Rene about a year later on the phone in the fall of 88. And uh, 1990, I would have met him. And that was the year the colloquium on violence and religion started at Stanford. And there were about 35 of us, I think, there at that time. I was the only non-academic, the only non-PhD, with all these high-powered guns. And just like I was in heaven, I I had died and gone to heaven, you know. And then I knew Rene for for a quarter century there until he passed in 2015. And 
um, Martha, and and so you know we would be we would visit him at home and and uh, at his home there, and when we were in California, and uh, we would see Renee and Martha at the colloquium meetings, and and then we had the privilege of being able to use their apartment a number of times. That's uh, about a block from the Eiffel Tower, and so when I did my PhD dissertation. I had yeah. written the first chapter and then I planned that trip and I went and spent two weeks in that apartment uh, and wrote this, the chapter on Girard. Oh, and what happened to the dissertation? Uh, the dissertation hasn't been submitted because back then, um, uh, <laughs> back then by the time I got ready to submit it is the time that the our, our, our dear Christian, progressive Christian friends decided I wasn't deserving of being in the ministry and they sent my us into bankruptcy and so I didn't have the 3k for the last term I see so I've, I've had the 3k for the last 18 months I could do it any time now I just there's work I need to do on the on the final chapter I've had three more years to think about it and read and meditate and, and I think once I once I uh, do the final editing in the final chapter. I think it's a butt kicker of a dissertation. Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of funny that I, I also I did a, a dissertation uh, through Nottingham University, and uh, I ended up doing it. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Slavoj. <laughs> I have been spit on by Slavoj. <laughs> <laughs> Well, everybody that is in close well, proximity. Yes, so, yes, I do. I am familiar with Zizek, yes. How I got there was kind of odd, but uh, of course I was also wanting to include uh, Rene Girard, but unfortunately the advisor that I had at that point who I didn't understand was actually going through a mental breakdown. Oh my. But I, I suggested a, a section on Girard and he said, oh no, that's all passe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they said that about Karl Barth too, they said that about Karl Barth, but but there's no theologian that's more important to America today than Karl Barth. In other words, that what I've done with in in uh, working in psychoanalytic literature, uh, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, uh -huh. it's, it's sort of the dark picture. You get the uh, uh, the picture of a kind of oppressive. You know, Gerard is really reading Freud. But he's reading he, he's reading Freud in his own way. He's he's uh, putting a yeah. different spin on it. Uh, but there's so much I think of Girardian theory that is just there. You know the Oedipus complex and the whole the whole notion that this this thing that we do uh, mm -hmm. in terms of of scapegoating it's not simply an uh, exterior thing, but of course what Paul is picturing and what uh, psychoanalytic li literature is picturing is actually this dynamic of a kind of uh, father figure oppressively abusing the you know the law in in, in Paul or uh, the ego in Freud or the symbolic you know in Lacan that under this symbolic order there is always this oppressive structure that is taken out on the, and of course, this is not between people. This was is within a particular person, and so in a sense, I Gerard, what Gerard was doing, it fit. But I didn't, I didn't get to deploy Gerard as a part of that. Dynamic. Yeah, that's too bad. 
because there's there's a tremendous amount of insight and in many things that you've been articulating here this last few minutes. But yeah, maybe it's time to think about a journal entry. Yeah, yeah. No, I uh, and I the, in our ministry here, you know, that we've appealed to Gerard. We explain had done several podcasts laying out uh, Gerardian theory. L let me ask you this. I know that for some people that Gerard is kind of the, you know, that here is a kind of exhaustive and universal explanation. Oh, the fear of totalitarian thinking. <laughs> yeah. Run that, that. Tell me what your response to that. Well, first of all, um, in our postmodern world, uh, and basically really since the, the late 1960s, that's the emergence of postmodernism is in the 1960s. Since that time, we have had uh, what Tillich used to call no ground under our feet. Our problem is precisely that we don't really think there's this thing called truth because we have been lied to by people who have told us they're telling us the truth. And when people who claim to be telling the truth lie, then you don't trust the people telling the truth. Or if you have somebody telling you this book was written by God, it's pure truth, and then you go read it and you discover problems with it, well, you don't trust it. Our problem as a species is we no longer trust, and therefore we can't find truth. Truth can only be found where there is trust. So one of the things that for me, again, is very, very important is that my inner orientation toward life, reality, relationships, the creation, friends, everything is trust. But what is, do I, is it that I don't, do I trust them not to hurt me? No, that's how we normally understand trust. I trust you not to hurt me. No, I trust that you love me and that if you hurt me and I share with you that it hurt, you'll repent and, and, and we can be restored. That's what I trust. And how does that relate then to a kind of understanding in which Gerard can become a be-all and end? Yeah, well, here's the thing about Rene. <laughs> I mean, even even in in physical life, he was he was larger than life. I mean, not only did we idolize him, you know, so many of us. I mean, and it's it's. I I sit and I look back on it, you know, and. And I, I want to say, you know, I never idolized him. He was my friend, this, that, and the other. But the fact is I did, you know, um, and, and, and I still do. But Rene and I, I used to, in fact, I've publicly, publicly critiqued Rene. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I mean, he raised questions about an interpretation he had. And not too many have ever done that. Uh, Rene loved what, what we were doing because we were, we were focusing on positive mimesis. But here's the thing about Rene. He saw something that applied to everything, and he just went after that. And that's why he's been called a hedgehog. What did he see? He saw, number one, all humans are imitative, and that we imitate each other's desires. Well, that's a literary phenomenon, and that's where he discovered it. And it has now since been validated in the human sciences and the neurocognitive sciences, as you know. Number two, he saw that rivalries escalate for no reason. And now we have studies from London University and the University of Texas that demonstrate this. He saw very clearly that groups 
formed around their ability to deceive themselves that what they did to someone was was wrong or poor or bad or evil and that is that is something shot through um I mean, I, I think you can, you can go all the way back to the ancient Greek philosophers and find some of this stuff, but you find it in the prophets, you find it in the Quran, you find it everywhere. You just find this logic being unpacked everywhere. So he's taken these very, very, very universal, uh, I will use, I, will, I won't even use the word truth, I'll use the word um, constructs or, or if you want, but he's, they're very universal. And he said, okay, there's a movement here. There's a dynamic that occurs from mimesis to rivalry to scapegoating to community formation and how the mechanism works. And that's all he was wanting to say. That's all he was really ever wanting to say was, look, people, this is mechanism. And unfortunately, there are still too many that are uh, afraid of some kind of Western colonial intellectual totalitarianism. And, and what's really odd to me is that this very fear is manifest all over Christianity. And if there was ever a totalitarian system in the world, it's the gospel. Because once you say Jesus is Lord, that's total. Jesus is either the Lord of everything or he's not the Lord. You know, So there's no more totalitarian ideology in the world than the gospel because it demands every thought, every action, every breath. That's, it's total. It's complete and total. You know, and of course, the, our moderns are just so freaked out about this. And so they, they pre, I think they really do prefer living in their pseudo la la land of we can never know truth. Well, as long as you're not trusting, you're never going to know truth. And that's a fact. You know, with a Girardian theory that, that, that there is an insight here, I can't find it. In other words, that, that I don't know how you go about reading religious myth. It just is sort of nonsense until you're given the key. <laughs> and once you have the key, then that's you right. Say, oh, well, now, now that's I understand a- what's happening. And I don't know who, I, I, you know, has anyone ever, you know, that his, right. his insight exactly. there. And of course, the same thing I think you could say in his examination of, of literature. I just happened to be, I picked up the Brothers Karamazov again and was reading through it. And of course, it's just always the, the structure, the dynamic is inevitable of the, the mimetic desire, the imitation, the rivalry, and the murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that in some way, he has hit upon these, these universal truths. And of course, as with any truth, as with the gospel, as with the cross, that we continue to apply and learn and expand upon. I think that, you know, you talk about Gerard and Schwager. It's kind of funny. I, I found Raymond Schwager's book. And, of course, I've been, I, I was a little bit isolated. First of all, uh, I, I just, I was discovering all of this on my own, and I really wasn't plugged in to, to what was happening. And so I thought that I had discovered Raymond Schwager. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, well, nobody knows that, about this brilliant you know, explication of, of Gerard. But it seems like between Schweiger and Gerard, in other words, that they themselves, that there's a kind of dynamic that, that, you, that you witness. Yeah, well, there, there's a story here too now, and that's that after Gerard had published Violence in the Sacred in 1972, Gerard had picked it up 
I believe, in 74, and um, got in contact with Renee, and the two of them began an exchange of letters which were published a couple of years back. Schwager got in touch with Gerard. Yeah, 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 yeah. Father, Father Schwager got in touch with Gerard, and uh, then they, they began a correspondence that would eventually turn into a very deep friendship until Father Schwager's untimely passing in 2004. But in that correspondence, both Gerard and Schwager are looking at the implications of violence in the sacred. And so Gerard at that point is working on things hidden since the foundation of the world, and Schwager's working on must there be scapegoats. And they're talking about each other's books in these letters, and you can see uh, Schwager, he, he's, Father Schwager was a very, very humble man, fun. I mean, he was fun and funny. He was funny, but uh, very humble. But he gently pushes back on Rene on the, on the question of, of uh, sacrifice uh, and how Rene is using the term. And at the end in 1978, within months of each other, they produced their books. Rene produced Things Hidden, Father Schwager, you know, Must There Be Scapegoats. Now, in my opinion, Must There Be Scapegoats is a much better, not better, better is the wrong word, a much friendlier, it's a much user-friendly approach to the scriptures from a mimetic theoretical perspective than Things Hidden. And because in Things Hidden, Renee's still elaborating the theory, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and yet both together are are I mean if you know if I have ten books with me on a desert island one is must there be scapegoats and another one's things hidden because together those two books provoke more questions and thoughts and research programs than any any two books published near each other that I could think of. Uh, that's you know if somebody asked me okay I want to I want to know about Rene Girard well in a sense I don't know where to point them in Girard's own work. I just point them to Schweiger. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, basically, that's what I, I've done most of my life is I've told, told people to read Must There Be Scapegoats. Mm -hmm. When I taught some classes here locally of oh, 10, 10, 12 years ago, I used I See Satan. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'll recommend people get the Girard Reader. Mm -hmm. There is not yet a really, there's no critical biography of Rene yet. Um, so people can't put his literature into the context of his life and that that his life and and his literature they're they're one and the same like Bonhoeffer and Bart and everything else right but for some reason people have abstracted Renee's literature from his life yeah it's a it's a challenge where do you enter Girard um, I love the lectures um, when these things begin uh, it's a nice little small inexpensive uh, book uh, I think University of Michigan State Press published that one. I have my own little book, you know, my Medic Theory and Biblical Interpretation for Protestants looking to kind of open, get things opened up. My Jesus Driven Life book was probably the most well-known approach to that because I have a whole chapter in there on Girard. Is that your book that most widely known? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Walter Wink wrote the afterword for it. and Gerard loved it. And I had incredible kudos for the back cover on that bad boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's that That was the way I'd heard of you. Yeah, it's interesting that Walter Wink, he bought in or he was on board with, I suppose, Gerardian. Well, I met Walter in 1990, same year I met Rene, we, and at, the, at a colloquium on violence and religion meeting in New Orleans, and Walter... Uh, was doing a paper that would eventually become the Girard chapter in his book, Engaging the Powers. And I did a paper that day, 
and uh, so did my colleague Ed Halson. We had tandem papers, and both those got mentioned in <laughs> in that same chapter. Walter's they're taking notes, you know, and put us in that chapter. And then I got to know Walter after about what year was it? Two thousand five. Yeah, from 2005 till his passing in 2012. Uh, and we started visiting up Walter and June up, you know, in uh, New England. Uh, we'd drive up there and visit and spend time. And Walter and I did a lot of jawboning before his dementia kicked in um, because I argued with him on his thesis of the powers. He says the powers are created, the powers are fallen, the powers are redeemed. I argued the powers are not created by God. Mimetic theory requires that they're created by us. They're, they're, you know, and we went, we spent lots and lots of times debating that, and it was fun. Well, you know, even uh, Wink's understanding of resisting and his reading of scripture. Yes. He, he does have a, an understanding that even the nonviolence of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, it's certainly not passive, but it's a form of active resistance. Yes, you, you can say it's a form of active resistance, but you, you can't be anachronistic about it. And this is the problem with our liberal friends. You know, they look at the cleansing of the temple and now they think that gives them some kind of mandate to go, you know, uh, defund police or something or whatever, however they're going to interpret it. I, I think that you've got to be really, 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 really careful at that point how you're, you're approaching this. Otherwise, you are going to be grossly, grossly misrepresenting an awful lot. Uh, well, run that down because, the, a the, in, in a sense, I, I feel, you know, when you use the word nonviolent, and I, I agree with you there, that in other words, there has to be a positive way to say this. Yes. But isn't it the case that in Walter Wayne, you get the alternative? This is not passiveness, this is an aggressive kind of resistance that is not violent well you you do uh, you do find that in walter but again i often you know would query what well, well, i mean we went round and round on these things i personally am fairly convinced that the christian is apolitical i don't think governments matter one basically people's you know i tell people i, I don't give a damn about who's in power it doesn't matter to me because they're all wrong they're all, they're all wrong. They're all destructive. Mm -hmm. They're no no candidate holds a moral high ground. Mm -hmm. So, and I look at the early church, and they're completely apolitical. And it's when Christianity becomes political that everything goes to crap with Constantine under Constantine. So, for me, the Christian is non-political. In that, somebody like Yoda writes the politics of Jesus. That just by being a Christian, by being a part of an alternative community, an alternative kingdom, that you have, re you have in a sense, joined uh, a resistant community. Correct. Correct. But resistant to what? Resistant to what? To the economy, to the notions of power. What was resistant to the economy? I think that in the church, that the church is not a capitalistic society. It's not a liberal democracy. It is, uh, in other words, there is, a, in your own words, an economy of forgiveness. Yes. That the church is not, as I understand it, to be a hierarchy of power. In other words, the whole notion 
that there be those who would lord it over you. Well, they've already disqualified. So there's an alternative form of government. Right. In which... Now, let me ask you this. Name me one liberal tradition that's managed to successfully implement that. Oh, I haven't found it. Yeah, that's... that's yeah, what they yeah. exist. Uh, except that, in a sense, we're always undoing, in other words, the, the structures of power, that the inevitably, when a group of people seem to get together, that once they organize, that and once they, what I would just call, they institutionalize, that they've already passed from uh, out of the biblical picture, in, in which uh, there are no forms of position or power or maybe even salary, I don't know. that. In other words, once there is some something there to be obtained by joining and leading in this group, well, in some way, haven't we abandoned the picture, which is, the I think, what the kingdom of God is to be about, this kind of disempowerment. Well, that's exactly, that's what we've done. My former wife used to say that a pastor's job is to work him or herself out of a job in three to five years to so train the congregation to do the work that they could do it. They didn't need him or her. And I tried that mm-hmm. and I did. <laughs> you were successful. That's right. no, they, they, but um, we do not know how to do community without power. We don't know how to do that. And the reason we don't do it is because we don't do discipleship. You cannot have a community without power that isn't grounded itself in mercy and forgiveness. That's fact. It's impossible. So we don't follow Jesus. So how can we possibly imagine that we're somehow going to uh, suss this thing out? Uh You know, using what? Sociological, political, and and analytical tools or uh, value systems. uh, What are we going to use to make sense of it? Because we've thrown the gospel out. We don't listen to the gospel. We don't follow Jesus. We don't do what he says. We don't practice what he says. And so no wonder we're confused and lost. Now, haven't we described a politic, though? Yes, we have truly described a politic, but it's really not a politic because there's not a polis. Mm. You can only have a politic where you have a polis. That in some way, to be a Christian is to be outside the city. <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And, we, are, we, are nomads. You, we are nomads. Yeah, yeah. That in some way, it is anarchic. Um, in the best sense of the word, the way that, um, for example, Jacques Ellul, the I don't know if he remembers the French uh, lawyer, cum theologian. I still love oh, yeah. his work so much. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. He observed that anarchy, or, no, this was Werner Deller. I think this was Werner Deller observed this, not, not Ellul, Werner Deller. Anarchy comes from the uh, Greek term arche, uh, beginning. And the alpha privative is the negation of that. And so your, your, your anarchy is saying we, there's a new beginning. It's all about new beginnings. But the RK, the RK of the universe, Paul uses the term stoichia cosmu, the fundamental principles of, of how we perceive reality. If the RK of the universe is Jesus, then he's truly an archaic, that is, anarchaic, the negative, he's the negative archaic, that is, he's the true positive archaic, of which all other archaics or beginnings are false starts. And so the to be political salt and light is to be anarchic. Um, as, as long as it's understood that, that anarchy is not to be perceived as 
freedom to do whatever I want whenever I want kind of thing. Right, right. Um, you know, for example, I, I belong to the community of what are called crypto anarchists. Okay, because we think the capital systems as they're currently uh, exist are unfair, unjust, and, and, and honestly illegitimate, <laughs> you know. But um, so, you know, you have your crypto anarchists. But the problem is you've also got your Antifa anarchists. You've got your Proud Boy anarchists. You've got your Christian progressive anarchists that will cancel culture you if you say the wrong thing. I mean, anarchy can play itself in all kinds of ways. You know, we have anarchy right now in the U.S. Senate with the Republicans jamming through a, a, a nomination. Right, right. It's a form of anarchy. Yeah, I was just using the word, in other words, that obviously it's carrying a lot of political baggage. Yeah. But as you described it, it's a good biblical word, too. Yes, it is. It certainly can be as, if, if, as long as Jesus is recognized as the true R.K., and that is the, the sense, in other words, that, that the description in Paul is the prince of the power in the air. Yes, that's in Ephesians, correct. And there is the sense then that even in the temptation of Jesus, that it seems like the kingdoms of this world are something that are at the disposal of the one who's evil. That is also correct. And it would make one suspicious that these institutions of power are not then part of redemption. Walter wanted them to be. I didn't think they could be. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not completely unempathetic with him because we. I think we all know that there are there are institutions, you know, we all like having our garbage picked up. There, there are things that we all enjoy, and and yes, actually, Rodney Clapp did a little book, and I thought it was actually quite, quite good. You know that he takes Niebuhr's notion. You know what is Christ's relationship to culture? He's not a, not. It's not that he's anti, or it's not that he's over or against. Yes, but there is the sense. Even his own expression may not be adequate, but I think that it begins to get at it, and that is that. There is in the church then a culture, but of course it's not as if this thing is an entity completely apart because, oh, we all speak English and we all do the things that people, in other words, we're going to carry that culture. And I suppose in that sense that there are elements within every culture that are positive and good and redeemed in and through the culture of the church. Okay, what are the three things that form the pillars of culture in mimetic theory? Myth, that's the community justifying, it's victimizing. Mm -hmm. You know, we the Native Americans were savages, we had to tame them. Prohibition, those commands that stop mimetic conflict from starting, because we know how dangerous it is, thou shalt not steal. And then finally, uh, ritual. Now, in if we're going to talk about Christian culture, number one, we have to replace myth with gospel. Myth is the story of the innocent victim who revealed the father's love by forgiving his enemies. We have to recognize that the prohibitions that exist in the gospel are not true prohibitions in a um, legalistic sense. They're, they are often... Uh, more admonitions, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So in other words, rather than prohibitions or something negative being stated, Jesus would often use positive. But third, we have a ritual. 
And what is that ritual? That ritual is where we gather together, we take bread, and when we break it, we recognize that we are crucifying Christ. We hate him. He's the son of a bitch. We're killing him. We're the mob. And that we take a cup of, of his blood where he says, I forgive you. So we, we enter into that primal cannibalistic act together that has held us together as a species from time immemorial. That early, primitive, cannibalistic ritual but now we do it with intention and we do it with another message a different cup a cup that does not have abel's blood in it a cup that has the blood of jesus in it where we have forgiveness of sins but of course we're not simply doing something to jesus that part of the admonition is take up your cross and follow me Yes, it has to always be that. It, there, in other words, you can't separate ethics from theology, ethics from eschatology. Uh, these are all moves that Christian theologians uh, have been doing going all the way back to the early church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. Your, your point is that, yes, we have a culture, but or, the word is sort of reversed and emptied. It's, it's made something quite different. Yes. In the, in the church. Yes. Well, now we, now we have Christian culture. What's Christian culture? Oh, Christian culture. That's where we go to church five nights a week. That's where we pray and read Bible together, and we don't smoke, and we don't drink, and we don't dance, and da 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 That's Christian culture. You know? That's not Christian. I mean, yeah, that's Christian culture, but there's nothing gospel about it. There's nothing Jesus about it. It's just, it's just right. religion. Right. And so the maybe the word cultus, is what is in fact there is a kind of religious and inherent religious element to the word that there is a negation in every culture of what we're describing that isn't there is uh forgive them i don't know what you know they don't know what they're doing that that is an inherent element to any culture that that is undone in other words they're no longer gathering together over a, a scapegoat victim but we recognize this is the way people normally gather. This is the cultus that forms most cultures. It's no longer that negation. It's a negation of the negation. That's right. Yes, there you go. Now, now we're doing a little Hegel here, but that's good. Yes. I, I was just thinking that this, I, I wrote a little blog this morning. You know, you can take things like uh, the, the moral argument or the religious argument. And what people do with those arguments, they imagine that there's some sort of positive morality, a universal positive moral law that we can discover or that we can arrive at given an, you know, an examination of reason and that we can then obtain this law that Kant calls the categorical imperative. But of course, what happens with the categorical imperative in someone like Adolf Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem, it becomes the justification for genocide. Yes. Or Marquis, the Marquis de Sade, I think, quotes, yep. you know, That's the sure. Kantian categorical imperative. That is that radical evil can flow out of this moral imperative that maybe indeed it is discoverable. But what we actually discover is not a universal moral law, but this thing that 
it actually leads Kant to pose the possibility of radical evil. Well, a uh, hundred years after Kant, we saw that radical evil postulated as Zarathustra. Uh, as a Christian, I, I would say two things about it. You know, the, the notion of radical evil, the idea that it's a kind of self-grounding thing or that it is an entity that is free of God, that, that it exists on its own. We recognize that's not the case. But, but as you said with scapegoating and other things, it's not enough to, to recognize that thing because actually the lie of radical evil best describes the nature of the notion of autonomy of a kind of self-grounding system that is the system behind modernity or behind the notion of, of, of modern reason. I, I, where I was going with that is, well, you, you know, even in that, though, in Paul's description of the human in, in uh, Romans 7, he's actually describing the dynamic of any individual in, in purely negative terms. But even in the negation, even in the absence, that there is still the trace in some way uh, of the Trinity, that the, the law that obscures the Father, we recognize from a Christian understanding that the Father is revealed. The ego that would obscure the place of Christ or the body of death that would obscure the role of the Holy Spirit. In other words, what is missing in, in our lives is God, but we can actually trace that absence. That was my point with the notion of, of uh, in other words, even in any culture, that culture puts on display the, in its negation uh, what it could be. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so you think of America. I mean, we are literally perhaps the most incredible nation that's ever existed, and particularly this last 60, 70 years, since World War II. The, the sheer number of changes that have come, come as a result of American innovation, American business, American tech, American finance, everything, everything, American military, I mean, all the negative stuff too, but, but the good stuff. Gosh, the artists, the musicians, the uh, you know the film industry, uh, the uh, university system before it got all corrupted. I mean, there was a. I mean, we produced some fine, fine things here. Um, but as you noted, that all things go back. To, all dogs return to their vomit, and that's also true of institutions. There's an interesting book by uh, Neil Howe and William Strauss called "The Fourth Turning," and they chronicle in American history cycles of four generations that run about 88 years and they show how we americans run through these cycles we're we're at the end of one right now and that we have generational archetypes and to me it's so fascinating to watch how we start off each new turning with a, a hero archetype you know like a george washington an abraham lincoln a john wayne a rambo i mean you know, Jesus Christ, superstar. You know, I mean, we have these mythological figures. And by the time we're done after after this uh, cycle is ending, we have the worst possible enemies. And unfortunately, Mr. Trump is coming at the end of a cycle. And Mr. Trump, he's the most interesting figure because he's setting himself up to be hated by all. I, I have never seen a human being so publicly set themselves up to be hated by everybody. And I'm not sure why, but my biggest fear is that we uh, failed uh, because the mechanism is broken. 
uh, to turn Saddam Hussein into a scapegoat. We failed to turn Osama bin Laden into a scapegoat. I mean, the last great scapegoat of the world is Adolf Hitler. And I don't mean, you know, that he was innocent. I mean, it's just that the world's united. Hitler was evil. And the moment you try to say anything against that, oh, man, you're, you're, you're doomed. It's cancel culture, right? That's how heavy and thick that that is. But our hatred of Hitler now is uh, generationally it's done. He's just a, a memory in the past for almost everybody. So we need a viable contemporary scapegoat that will last a while. And, uh -huh. and uh, my fear is that Americans will make Mr. Trump that. We don't need to do that because, you know, he's not the problem. He's not the solution, but he's not the problem. We ourselves as a people are the problem. Uh -huh. As long as we cannot love our brother and love our sister, as long as we can care for those whom we meet, as long as we can not speak kind words when we're spoken harshly to, as long as we cannot forgive those who hurt us, we will not survive as a nation. And the whole Christian experiment known as America will come tumbling down just like it did in Europe. And in 10 years, we'll be post-Christian here. Yeah, I, I like your spin. I've always thought of Trump. The, the emptiness of evangelicals in their support of Trump is not, in other words, that's not a new thing. No. It's an exposure of an old thing. Correct. It's certainly time that it be exposed for what it is. Yes. But we, we cannot, look, when he loses, and he will lose, we cannot, you know, I mean, I'll go on Facebook and I'm going to put up, you're fired, because I can't wait to say that, you know. Mm -hmm. But other than that, other than that, I you know, you've, you're on my Facebook page, you see, you know, I have real issues with Trump as a human being. I have mm -hmm. issues with some of his policies, not all of them. I've always called him a clear and present danger, even before he was elected. But he is not the problem. Yeah. He's the, he's, the sim, he's a symptom. There's no shocker that he is, in other words, we, we all know who he was from day one. Yes, we did. Boy, and, we got what we paid for, I'll tell you. And there's been no surprise. Yes. Well, who, whoever the next president is, is going to inherit the first year of the greatest depression under the human species. So whether it's Trump or whether it's Mr. Biden, they will not be in an enviable position at all. And uh, it's at this point that one really wants to wonder uh, whether one should or actually, as the, the biblical writer says, pray for the king, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gosh. So. Yeah. No matter who he is. No matter who he or she, yes, exactly. Michael, this has been wonderful. I'm glad that we could have this conversation. Me too, Paul. Yeah. Thank you so kindly. Yeah, so good. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.